Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. The question is, can he do it? He doesn't know. He knows that she chews them sometimes, her face wrinkling at the awful orange taste, and a sound comes from her mouth like splintering popsicle sticks. But these are different pills, gelatin capsules. The box says, Darvon Complex, on the outside. He found them in her medicine cabinet and turned them over in his hands, thinking. Something the doctor gave her before she had to go back to the hospital. Something for the ticking nights. The medicine cabinet is full of remedies, neatly lined up like a voodoo doctor's cures. Gree-gree of the Western world. Fleet suppositories. He has never used a suppository in his life, and the thought of putting a waxy something in his rectum to soften by body heat makes him feel ill. There is no dignity in putting things up your ass. Philip's milk of magnesia, anisid arthritis pain formula, Pepto-Bismol, more. He can trace the course of her illness through the medicines, but these pills are different. They are like regular Darvon only in that they are gray gelatin capsules, but they are bigger, what his dead father used to call Hoscock pills. The box says ASP, 350 GR, Darvon, 100 GR. And could she chew them even if he was to give them to her? Would she? The house is still running. The refrigerator runs and shuts off. The furnace kicks in and out. Every now and then, the cuckoo bird pokes grumpily out of the clock to announce an hour or half. He supposes that after she dies, it will fall to Kevin and him to break up housekeeping. She's gone, all right. The whole house says so. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, your host, and I'm recording this late at night on a weekday after spending an extra long day at the office. How fitting, then, that I'm here to begin a book review series on Stephen King's short story collection, Night Shift. Published in February of 1978, this book is King's first published collection of short stories. There are 20 tales in the volume, and over the course of 2014, I will be giving each story its own focus as an episode in this podcast series. For any listeners joining us for the very first time, welcome, and thank you for giving this podcast a try, and I hope you stick with us on this very, very long journey of looking back at all of Stephen King's widely published works. If you go to the archive section at booksandnachos.com, you'll find my reviews of Stephen King's novels Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Dr. Sleep, and Rage, the book he published under his Richard Bachman pseudonym. There you'll also find two reviews I've already done from the Night Shift collection. The short stories Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road are a prequel and sequel respectively to Salem's Lot, and they were included in some of the 30th anniversary editions of that novel. As such, I wanted to review those stories while Salem's Lot was fresh in my brain. But now I'm turning my focus to the Night Shift collection as its own beast, and I won't be reviewing these stories in the order that they appear in the book, but hopping around a bit to keep pace with Now Playing Podcast, another podcast where co-host Stuart Jacob and I are watching all of the movies based on Stephen King's writing. Throughout 2014, we're going to be watching all the films that this book inspired, including The Mangler, Maximum Overdrive, Cat's Eye, and the seemingly endless Children of the Corn movie series. In total, there are 21 feature films, plus numerous television episodes, short films, and more, all based on the stories from Night Shift. Even more impressive, of the 20 stories in this collection, 19 have been optioned for feature films. Only the 19th century epistolary Lovecraftian Jerusalem slot has not been optioned as a potential Hollywood film. 
NBC had even planned to do an entire anthology TV series called Night Shift, but backed off when the network censors got involved. Not bad at all for a book that Doubleday didn't even want to publish. As this is my first time really looking at Night Shift, allow me to give you a bit of history of this best-selling book. If you've listened to my previous King reviews, through Bachman's Rage, I've traced the author's life and career. From Carrie, a first novel from an unknown author that, thanks to Brian De Palma's adaptation, became a paperback bestseller. Then Salem's Lot, a far more ambitious follow-up novel that also had to go to the paperback racks to sell, and also boosted by Hollywood's spotlight on Carrie. But The Shining was King's first book released after De Palma's film, and it was King's first hardcover bestseller. Three books, three bestsellers, one in hardcover. In three short years, King went from being unable to afford his telephone bill, working days as a high school teacher, stealing whatever time he could to write his fiction after hours, to an author who could quit his day job. He moved to Colorado for a time, then England for a few months, before finally returning to his home state of Maine. He had money, and as an author, he was starting to gain clout. But there's a funny thing about success. It changes your expectations. It certainly changed King's. No interview I've read gives a specific reason. I've never seen King self-analyze his shift in behavior. But after the release of The Shining, King started to chafe under his contract with Doubleday. It's very easy to play armchair quarterback and point out that Doubleday made Stephen King a best-selling author. King submitted Rage to Doubleday, and though it was refused, Doubleday's editor William G. Thompson thought it showed promise. Thompson created a relationship with King, and later Thompson would ask the author what else he'd written. And though King thought Carrie had no commercial prospects, he showed it to the editor more to keep up the relationship. Had Thompson not asked, had Thompson not done that reach out, Carrie may have never hit bookshelves and you and I may not have ever heard of Stephen King, teacher at Hampton Academy who had a couple short stories published in Skin Mags. But King's massive success had him started to question his relationship with Doubleday. His contract called for a 50-50 split on paperback sales, and all of King's attempts to renegotiate due to his high sales to get himself a better share were refused. More, as I mentioned in my review of Rage, Doubleday would only publish one book per author per year, and King wanted to release more than that, leading to the creation of Richard Bachman with another publisher, which to me is like a wife telling her husband to go have a mistress if he wants sex more than once per week, never realizing that she's allowing him to start seeing how other relationships go. King even started to complain about the quality of Doubleday's printing and binding, claiming that the books they printed didn't look nice or feel like good books. They felt factory-made and had ugly, plain covers. So things were getting tense between author and publisher during this time, but King was under contract to deliver five books to Doubleday. And after The Shining's success, Doubleday wanted the next one to get out quickly. The Shining was published in January of 1977, and the publisher wanted the next book out as soon as possible early 1978, to keep the readership consuming. But King's next book wasn't ready in time. If you've listened to my reviews of his first three novels, you've heard how King's writing had evolved and his storytelling ability had grown. The author was ready to take that to the next level still with The Stand, a huge novel that King envisioned as his own modern-day Lord of the Rings-type epic. But he was struggling with such a large book and suffered from a bit of writer's block halfway through that story. More... It was a huge book that would be over 1,200 pages when he finally delivered it to the publisher. King just needed more time, but Doubleday wanted a book they could print. So King offered them a short story collection he entitled Night Moves, the name taken from the Bob Seger song. It would compile a number of short stories King had written in the late 60s and on, 
most published in Cavalier, a nudie magazine. Doubleday tried to refuse this offer. They had no desire to reprint old stories that had already seen print. More, short story anthologies really don't sell well historically. They wanted King's next novel, not recycled material, but through negotiation, King was able to convince them, offering up an additional four never-before-published shorts, as well as an introduction written specifically for the collection. Still, Doubleday put virtually nothing into releasing Night Shift, renamed from Night Moves for reasons unknown, perhaps to tie more closely with the included story Graveyard Shift. The book's hardcover printing was limited to 12,000 copies, less than they even did for King's earlier novel Salem's Lot, becoming one of the most expensive first edition Stephen King collectibles. It did not become a hardcover bestseller, likely due to the scarcity, and the publisher then had to scramble to get more copies out to meet the demand. It did become a paperback bestseller, though, and paved the way for King to never again receive publisher pushback for his anthology works. I can understand why readers gobbled up this book. First, while the majority of these stories were published previously, they were in old issues of magazines that would be difficult for King's constant readers to track down. I know at least my school library didn't keep copies of Penthouse and Cavalier around for review, and come to think of it, I'm glad they didn't for strictly sanitary reasons. I'm also positive that having two of the stories in this collection be tie-ins to the best-selling Salem's Lot raised interest in Night Shift. It was a book people loved, and I know I was so interested in what these two stories could have that I jumped the gun and reviewed them with Salem's Lot. More, this book is a sampler for a hot new author. King's books and movie had made headlines, so readers interested in trying out his writing style would be able to try several different types of stories without too big a commitment. And finally, for those who were some of King's earliest constant readers, I bet a big draw was King's newly written introduction to the book. Back then, author introductions weren't widely read, and King himself calls out it's primarily the family of the author who reads these. But these days, King's introductions are some of my favorite parts of his works. I absolutely love it when King, in the first person, talks directly to his constant readers, setting the stage for the book we're about to read. While I was not interested in the writing techniques, this conversational style is what had me read on writing from cover to cover. If you can't tell from my reviews thus far, I find the making of the book, the inspiration, the thought, to be every bit as interesting as the final story, and King offers it up along with his own insights into horror, fiction, and so many other topics. With Night Shift, he started that tradition. He opens with, Let's talk, you and I. Let's talk about Fia. It's a great intro that almost deserves its own review. In it, you see King embracing his title as horror author. By this time, he'd been asked by countless interviewers where he gets his sick ideas and why would anyone want to read such horrible trash, and here King puts out his thesis. He lets all his readers know what he has told many interviewers. He writes this because he has no choice. He's a man obsessed with the macabre. I love this line in the introduction. Quote, in civilized society, we have an unspoken agreement to call our obsessions hobbies, unquote. He goes on that his obsession is a marketable one, and he hypothesizes a reason people love horror and love to be scared. He writes, quote, All our fears add up to one great fear. All our fears are part of the great fear. An arm, a leg, a finger, an ear. We're afraid of the body under the sheet. It's our body. And the great appeal of horror fiction through the ages is that it serves as a rehearsal for our own deaths. End quote. He continues discussing the great horror writers of the past, writers whose influence on Night Shift is blatant, and how these horror masters like Poe and Lovecraft weren't regarded in their own time either. King continues, 
It may be because the horror writer always brings bad news. You're going to die, he says. He's telling you to never mind Oral Roberts and his something good is going to happen to you because something bad is also going to happen to you. And it may be cancer, and it may be a stroke, it may be a car accident, but it's going to happen. And he takes your hand and he folds it in his own. And he takes you into the room and he puts your hands on the shape under the sheet and tells you to touch it here, here, and here, end quote. In this section, King truly sets the stage for the stories that are to come, most of which are horror of one type or another, some of which are very human, and others that are of a more supernatural bent. But King also writes something that speaks to me very dearly as someone who will be reviewing these stories. Quote, Great horror fiction is almost always allegorical. Sometimes the allegory is intended, as an animal farm, in 1984. And sometimes it just happens. J.R.R. Tolkien swore up and down that the Dark Lord of Mordor was not Hitler in a fantasy dress, but these theses and term papers to that effect go on and on. Maybe because, as Bob Dylan says, when you got a lot of knives and fucks, you gotta cut something. End quote. He also writes that he's firmly convinced a horror story, quote, must tell a tale that holds the reader or the listener spellbound for a little while, lost in a world that never was, never could be. End quote. And it's on that criteria that I will judge each of King's short stories in this volume. Though I will admit, after reviewing Rage, I am a bit more leery to jump into some of his earlier stories. These stories span King's writing from 1968 to 1978, a full decade in which his craft grew by leaps and bounds. I mentioned earlier that I felt this collection would give new readers a taste of King's writing, but these stories also really open up the landscape for King. In the introduction, he writes of horror, having embraced his label as a horror writer, but these stories show an author struggling to find his identity. The result is a smorgasbord of story types. There are some tales in here that are about nasty human violence, much like King would write in Rage. There are dramatic, heartfelt stories that feel far more like King's 90s work, the stuff he would write after getting sober, than any of his novels from the 70s and 80s. And yes, there is horror, some of which rely on gore, some on suspense. Some are tales of demons, others are more earthly scares. There's a period piece with Jerusalem's lot, and a very sci-fi tale of an astronaut in I Am the Doorway. And I look forward to reading and reviewing them all for you. So let's move on to the next short story I'm going to be reviewing in Night Shift, The Woman in the Room. It's the last story in the Night Shift collection as printed, and one of the book's four stories being published for the first time. This 14-page tale tells of John, the adult son of a 60-year-old woman who is hospitalized and dying of stomach cancer. She's been sick for some time, and in the hospital for the past three weeks as she undergoes a cordotomy, a procedure that disables the pain receptors in the nervous system to help alleviate the suffering of the terminally ill. John doesn't know the term cordotomy and thinks of it very phonetically as a cortotomy. When the story starts with the excerpt that I read opening this podcast, John is in his mother's house rummaging through her medicine cabinet looking for pills that will be strong enough to euthanize the woman. He finds a bottle of Darvon, painkillers that had previously been prescribed to his mother. The story follows John as he visits his mother in the hospital, trying to decide if he can bring himself to feed his mother the pills. Right away, this story may seem different from King's usual fare. There are no monsters waiting for this woman in the closet, no demons inside of her that John must try to kill, and no ancient burial ground that could give his mother a new life. This is a very grounded story that could be a scene in anyone's life, including my own. But most importantly... This is a scene from King's own life. I'd mentioned in previous podcasts that in 1973, King, his wife Tabitha, and their two kids moved back to southern Maine to be with King's dying mother. 
At age 59, Ruthie King was dying of cervical cancer, and Stephen, her youngest son, had brought his family to care for her. It was during this period that Stephen King would find out Carrie was accepted for publication, but his mother didn't live long enough to see that book hit shelves. It was to Ruthie King that Stephen dedicated Night Shift. From reports, Stephen was emotionally devastated by the death of his mother. King's father left when Stephen was very young, and he and his brother were raised by a single mom. After Ruthie's death, King would be depressed, drink heavily, and leave Maine and the memories of his mother behind to live in Colorado. During this mourning period, King also wrote his catharsis. He was writing his next two novels, Salem's Lot and The Shining, but he also wrote other pieces to cope with the death. One of those was Roadwork, which would later be published under the Bachman pseudonym. Another was The Woman in the Room. In the book Stephen King from A to Z by George Beam, I found out this story was also collected in Carl Wagner's book The Year's Best Horror Fiction. In that collection, quote, King wrote that this story was healing fiction, written in the wake of his mother's lingering death from cancer. Typically, fiction performs its healing powers for the reader. This time it did so for the author, end quote. And clearly, this is a story that is very autobiographical, and it's very hard to determine where reality ends and fiction begins. In the story, John is the woman's youngest son who is charged with her care while his older brother Kevin lives farther away and thus is less involved and visits her less often. This rings very true as King, Ruthie's youngest son, moved to be with his mother, and King also has an older brother. Also, the scenes from the hospital play true to life, where it's very easy to imagine King writing a journal entry more than short-form fiction. He writes about the brown-on-brown -brown color of the hospital walls, the white with blue striped johnnies that the patients wear in the hospital, and, quote, a rolling IV tray with two bottles hung from it, like a Salvador Dali dream of tits. A line that will never let me look at IVs the same way again. More than setting a scene that feels more documentary than fiction in the concrete details, John's rituals as he goes to visit his mother come across as incredibly true. The story tells how Johnny would drink a few beers before visiting his mother, needing to be drunk to face her weakened, mentally addled state. He would then leave beers in the car, and always intentionally forget something he brought for his mother, giving him an excuse to return to the vehicle and drink those beers, staying drunk throughout the visit. Knowing King's penchant for drinking heavily, this feels like a detail right from his life, as does this passage, quote, It made him ashamed to be drunk in front of his mother, even though she was too doped and full of Elleville to know. Elleville is a tranquilizer they give to cancer patients, so it won't bother them so much that they're dying. End quote. John also uses the car trip to piss outdoors, because using the hospital bathrooms with their handicapped rails and nurse call buttons was, quote, too much like an apothesis of the whole hospital experience, end quote. The personal details go on, telling how John always stops at the drinking fountain on the way to his mother's room, stalling that extra bit to put off the visit. Not that John doesn't want to see his mother, but that the visits are hard. His mother's mental state goes in and out. She closes her eyes, only to reopen them a moment later and not remember the conversation they were having. Worst, she is still in immense pain. The chordotomy didn't fix it. The doctor claims the pain is imagined, and thus no medication can relieve it. But it is real to John's mother and makes her suffer. Now, it is clearly impossible to know where Stephen King's experience ends and John's begins. I can only imagine that there is more fiction to this story than I'm giving King credit for. That I'm taking a morsel of fact and expanding it to every detail of the story. But it's impossible to tell, and honestly, it doesn't really matter. I think these details come from reality because King's writing makes them feel utterly and entirely real. It helps that King gets the medical facts right as well. The chordotomy that John's mother has is a real procedure performed on cancer patients. 
and the Darvon pills John grabs are an opiate-based painkiller that was banned in 2010 due to the number of deaths linked with it, either due to a accidental overdose or due to combining the painkiller with other types of drugs or with alcohol. The result is a character-driven drama that left me with tears streaming down my face as I read it. If you've ever watched a loved one die in a hospital, these details and scenes will bring back those memories. I couldn't help but think of my grandmother visiting our house while dying of cancer, her wails of pain when her ribs just snapped in her torso, weakened by the disease. I also thought of my godfather who died of a heart attack. He held on for three days in the hospital, and I went and visited him at least twice a day, talking to the doctors and wanting to spend every moment I could with him, knowing they may be the last, but also feeling the same reluctance to see this man who helped raise me, now broken and dying, drugged out of his mind in a hospital bed. I read this story when I was 13, and I thought it was dull. God, what a foolish child I was. I now consider this the single best story in the Night Shift collection, for it has a humanity that feels real, and also asks an important question about euthanasia. Still a great debate in the U.S., over 35 years after this story was published, the question if a person who can expect only pain for the rest of their life, and who is dying anyway, should be allowed to die with dignity is raised in an intelligent and emotional manner. John's mother is too far gone to be able to make the decision for herself. If it's to be done, it must be John's decision. And John has realistic fears, such as jail time. King wrote, quote, I don't want to go to court on a mercy-killing charge, not even if I can beat it. I have no causes to grind. He thinks of newspaper headlines screaming matricide and grimaces, end quote. But King does keep John's thoughts for his mother and her suffering. Other real-world concerns, such as mounting medical expenses, John's own pain, the stress this situation may be placing on his marriage or his job, those never come up. If John feeds her the pills, he's doing so for her, not for him, which is a very idealized view of many medical situations. When reading this, I was reminded of King's most recent novel, Dr. Sleep, and how Dan in that book would ease the death of terminal patients as they go to whatever lies beyond. While that is a more fantastical story dealing with ghosts and psychics, the emotional core of those death scenes in that book is the same as this story. It's King holding up a mirror and showing us true horror, true fear. The fear King spoke of in his introduction, the fear of our own death. Keep in mind, this is the last story of the book, a book in which almost every other story tells of someone dying. In some, they die by the hands of an evil laundry machine. In some, they die at the hands of supernatural creatures. In some, they die eaten by rats. But they're all fictitious, fantastical deaths. This is a wonderful coda to these tales. King said in his introduction that horror is a rehearsal for our own death. And in that view, the first 19 stories in Night Shift are a rehearsal for the woman in the room. After seeing death come in so many unrealistic forms, are we ready to look into the mirror and consider our own fragile mortality and the most likely way we Americans will die, hooked up to machines in a hospital and hopefully not in too much pain? In a way, I'm sad now playing scheduled dictates that I review this story so early when it's truly a glorious ending to the collection. Yet I'm also glad because this story reminds me of King's ability to transcend words on a page and make his characters and situations feel so real. This is very important because most of the stories in this collection were from earlier in King's career, and having just reviewed Rage, which King wrote around the same time as these early stories, I'm afraid these tales, like that early novel, may lack the refinement and talent that King would later have. 
It's great to read a story that reminds me why I'm a fan of Stephen King. And I want to stress, this story, while far different from King's other fiction of the time, clearly has King's voice. Adding to my theory that John is Stephen by another name, John thinks the way King would. Thinking about needles going into his mother's brain, John compares the procedure to Michael Crichton's The Terminal Man. Thinking of euthanizing his mother, John thinks back to early Ray Bradbury tales. And seeing the hospital residents shamble through the halls reminds John of Night of the Living Dead, a comparison I made myself once when visiting a nursing home. But King also experiments with his writing style in this story. The piece is broken up into sections, but sentences flow from one section to another, topics changing like Mad Libs. It gives the entire piece a drugged-out, dreamlike quality that helps envelop the reader in its reality. You don't need to know what John does for a living, you don't need to meet John's kids, you're with John, who is focused on his dying mother, and these unusual scene breaks keeps the flow contiguous while also allowing the reader to see the passage of time. It's a risky style that complements this piece beautifully. The Woman in the Room is King's craft at its finest, but it's also a drama piece and not horror. As such, I'm both surprised and not when I read that no one had asked for the rights to adapt The Woman in the Room for the screen until 1980, when a film school student named Frank Darabont wrote to King expressing his desire to make a short movie version. King, despite his hard negotiations with the publisher, was always friendly to students, and so despite the objections of his agent, King created what he called the Dollar Baby, where for one dollar, King would sell a film student non-exclusive rights to any of his short stories. These films could not be commercially distributed, they were for film festival and classroom purposes only, but they would give these blossoming filmmakers strong material on which to base their projects. But Darabont's adaptation of this film holds the title to this day of King's favorite Dollar Baby adaptation, and paving the way to future King-Darabont collaborations on films The Mist, The Shawshank Redemption, and The Green Mile. More, The Dollar Baby of the Woman in the Room is one of only three Dollar Babies to actually be renegotiated and see commercial release, albeit in direct to VHS form. Darabont's adaptation of this story, plus student Dollar Baby adaptations of The Boogeyman and Children of the Corn, were released in direct to VHS series called Stephen King's Night Shift Collection. And this will be Now Playing's first Stephen King review in 2014, coming out at nowplayingpodcast.com on Tuesday, February 25th. If you come to our forums, and there's a link from booksandnachos.com, you can find YouTube links to watch these dollar babies before our review. And also in the forums, you can find the schedule for my reviews of the Night Shift stories if you'd like to read along with me this year. And while at the forums, please let me know what you think of The Woman in the Room and any other King books I've reviewed thus far. As I've mentioned, I'm spending a large number of hours on this King retrospective series, far more hours on the Books and Nachos side than the now playing side. So if you're enjoying this series, please let me know, either on our forums or by sending an email to show at booksandnachos.com. I'll be back next week reviewing another short story from Night Shift, The Boogeyman, originally published in March 1973. I hope you've enjoyed this review, thank you for listening, and until next time, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. 
Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.